Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. This morning, turn in your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to be in chapter 12, 13, and 14 today. And this is actually the very center of the book. We've been studying this book, you know, for a little while now. And we are coming now to the heart. This is the heart of the book. Remember, our, our, our theme through this whole study is back in the fight. Um, that, the, that the goal of Revelation is to get the fight, put the fight back into us and then put us back into the fight. And this morning is really the fight. So this is this is the battle. This is where the battle's fought right here today. So this is a really important part of the whole book. It's really kind of the heart of the book. And if you think about it, it's actually the center of the book. So that makes sense, doesn't it? Um, you know, it's been heartbreaking to um, see some of these pictures, and you've no doubt seen them as well, coming out of Ukraine. And, you know, and what's, what's heartbreaking about it is you think, I put myself in these, in these people's shoes, right? I mean, a month ago, literally a month ago, they're just like you and me, going about their lives, doing their job, trying to feed their family, hanging out with their friends. And now, less than a month later, devastated. Everything they own in a plastic garbage bag refugees. The, the devastation, the loss is just staggering, isn't it? And, and I put myself in their shoes and I think, oh God, wow. But I, I think for us, the timing of it is very um, serendipitous because that's a picture of your life and mine. The, the truth is, we're in a fight. And if we don't wake up to the fight, you will end up being destroyed by it. Like, literally. We, we need to realize that we are fighting for our very lives. Okay? Um, the, now, of course, we're not, you know, we're not fighting against people. People are not the enemy. You understand that? The, the way a lot of Christians talk, they, they act like other Christians are the enemy or like, you know, liberals are the enemy or something like that. That's not, that's not the truth. The Bible's pretty clear who our enemy is. Ephesians chapter 5, 6 tells us that we war not against flesh and blood. We don't, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We fight against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, that's where our fight is. It's a spiritual battle, and the spiritual battle actually then has ramifications in the physical realm. We're dealing in two realms. You and I, as God's people, we straddle two, two worlds. We straddle the spiritual world and the natural world. And, and you understand that the spiritual world is far bigger than the natural world. Like, like in the natural world, you know, the old analogy, it's the tip of the iceberg, right? It's just the natural world is the tip of the iceberg. 
the spiritual world is so much larger. It eclipses the natural world by many, many, many times, an infinite number of times. And so, so you and I are in the middle of this battle, and we come now to Revelation chapter 12, and, and, uh, and John uses, I mean, he pulls out all the stops. As we've noted, he's just a brilliant writer, and he uses imagery to just paint pictures for us and there's something about this imagery that moves us, it stirs us to action. And as we've noted a couple of weeks ago, you know, the, the part of the purpose of imagery is to do that, to stick with us. We're supposed to feel something. And, and my prayer is that, boy, this morning, I hope as we go through this that you feel this. That's, I really do. I pray. We walk out of here this morning uh, just like stirred up inside. Or maybe even ready to punch something, but not. You know what I mean? But like, we need to be, we need to be ready. And so, so that's where we're at here. Revelation chapter 12. Now, verse, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says there's a blessing to those who read the words of this prophecy out loud. And so we're going to read Revelation chapters 12 and 13, and I'm going to skim 14 for the sake of time. But uh, I'm just going to believe and trust God that... Well, his word is true, and if he says if you, there's a blessing for those who read it out loud, well, then let's read it out loud, because I don't know about you, I want a blessing. Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. That great dragon was hurled down. How, how was he sent down? Hurled. What happened to him? He was hurled. Yep. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So this is heaven singing about us and this dragon and the accuser has been hurled down. They triumphed, that's us, they triumphed over him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe 
to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. That's the third woe. Remember last Sunday we talked about the three woes and we dealt with two of them? This is the third. The third woe is this. Woe to the earth and the sea. Why? Because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who's like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Wrap your mind around that. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone goes into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Well, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It deceived them. It ordered them to step up, to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath 
to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Well, then I looked, and there before me was a lamb, was the lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a peal of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. By the way, ladies, that is not a diss on you at all. Uh, it's just a, an old-fashioned uh, biblical way, if you will, of just simply saying these people remain pure. That's what they're saying. So it's not at all. Uh, I know that it reads kind of negative, but it's not at all. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And then he, and then he verses 6 through um, four, 13, these three angels, each one has a different message that they give to the world. Uh, basically, it's the gospel. They're announcing it to the world, the good news that God has come, that they can have a relationship with Him, and that if they don't receive God, if they don't receive the gospel, then they're under the wrath of God. And then that gets played out here in harvesting the earth. At the end of chapter 14, you see these two harvests. You've got the harvest of wheat and then the harvest of grapes. Look at the harvest of wheat in verse 14. This is done by Jesus. He says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out and called and said, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. One swing, and Jesus takes his people home. And then, and then verse 17, another angel came out from the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar. Remember how a couple, couple weeks ago we said that when you pray, uh, when you pray, that it goes up like incense, and then this angel at the altar takes the coal. Here, same angel. See, he's coming back. So now this angel from the altar, right? calls in a loud voice to that angel with the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled on in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Wow graphic for sure 
So let's just look at the characters. We've got to define the characters first, okay? You've got several distinct characters in here, and we need to know who they are. So first, we have a woman. Uh, possibly we have a couple of different women, actually, but there's the woman, and then you have her child, and then you have a dragon who wants to eat her child, and then we have other children who belong to this woman, and then you have these two beasts. So who are they? Well, let's start with the, um, with the obvious ones first and work our way to the more complicated ones. How about that? Because some of them are more clear than others. Um, the beautiful thing about figurative language is it grabs your attention, but it also gives you heartburn because you're trying to figure out like who's who and what's what. And, and if you notice too, the timeline here really shifts around and moves a lot. Did you catch that? Like you say... You know, the first paragraph in chapter 12 seems like it talks about Mary giving birth to Jesus, and then, and then verse 7, war breaks out, and that's when the devil gets kicked out of heaven. You think, well, I thought the devil got kicked out of heaven before that, see? And then over here in uh, chapter 13, he's the lamb, chapter 13, verse 8, he's the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. So wait a second, Jesus was crucified before he made the world? Well, yeah, and no, and you get it? It's like you and I, you know, we're trapped in the timeline. So for us, we have to go chronologically. But heaven is not trapped by the same chronological rules. So now is the same as yesterday, is the same as tomorrow, and I don't understand it, but that's the way that it is. So that's what's going on here. And if you try to see this chronologically, you're going to go banana cakes, and you're going to really just miss the, the power of this message. So let's just see who they are first. The dragon. The dragon is clearly the devil. Verse 4, chapter 12, verse 4, says his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. We know from other scripture passages that when the devil fell from heaven, and we just learned today, he didn't actually fall, did he? He was hurled. Yeah, I think that's important. Because if he fell, it's kind of like an accident, you know, oh, it was, no, hurled means the devil has God's boot print on his butt for the rest of eternity. I mean, he was hurled. It was repeated four times in this chapter. So made it, made it very clear. This was none of those like the devil, you know, could have won and maybe just didn't if it had just gone right his way at the end. No, it's a decisive victory. He lost, and he was booted from heaven, okay? So, so that's, that, that's kind of cool how he made that super clear there. But, but all that to say, like this timeline is really mixed up. So here's the dragon. He's the devil. His tail swept a third of the angels. When the devil was hurled from heaven, a third of the angels went with him. And then verse 9 just spells it right out. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So that's pretty clear. The dragon's a devil. The child is also pretty clear. The child in verse 1 there is Jesus. Verse 5 says that she gives birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. You see that in chapter 12, verse 5? That's a quote from Psalms chapter 2, verse 9. Psalm 2 is commonly understood, has been for a very long time, to be a messianic psalm that it sings, it points to the coming of the Jewish Messiah. 
And so John is using that as a clue to tell you that this child is Jesus. So we, we don't need to make any, you know, there's no question about that. The child is Jesus. So you say, well, that must make the woman Mary. That's not as obvious who the woman is. The, uh, verse, you know, um, she could be Mary. I mean, it certainly looks like that at first. But then she could also be Eve. Some people think of her as Eve, that she's the mother, if you will, of all the living. You know, you and I, Eve was all of our mother. At some point, we go back to her. Uh, some people believe that the woman is Israel, um, because then that makes sense, that, because Israel, you know, is the nation of people, the group of people through whom the Messiah was ultimately, you know, brought to earth. See, so in a sense, Israel is the mother too. But you could also argue that kind of the mother, the woman, is all three of those. And you look at her one way, she's, she's Mary. Another way, she's Eve. You look at her another way, and she's Israel. You look at her another way, and she's all believers. And, and that's kind of the, that's another beautiful thing about figurative language, is it can do that sort of thing. He's got... You know, he's got some flexibility when you're using figurative language, don't you? That you don't have when you're being strictly literal. And so, so this woman is sort of all over the place. But the key here is chapter 12, verse 17. Look what happens. The dragon, it says, goes out to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So who's that? That's us, that's you, that's me. Are you, are you holding fast your testimony about Jesus? Are you, are you keeping God's commands? Are you walking in relationship with him? Then, yeah, this is you. So you're also in Revelation 12, and this is what's awesome. John does not allow you and me to just be casual outside observers in this war. Notice that you and I are both fighting this war. We're, fight, we're fighting it with the angels. Look at verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7. Then Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. So the angels are fighting them. But then look at chapter 12, verse 11. The people of God. We triumph over the devil by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by not loving our lives so much as to shrink from death. So the devil's getting beat up from both sides, man from the angels and from the people of God. He's, he's fighting hard. Okay? So you and I are not just, you know, armchair Christians flipping through the channels, watching this battle go on from a distance. You and I are in the fray. Okay? And, 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 this, is, and this is what John is trying to say. Look, at, this is why you can't get too wrapped up, honestly, in the figurative language, because while it's fun and while it's fascinating, it can drive you nuts, and then you miss the main point. And, 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 and we need to understand when we're, when we're studying this figurative stuff that here's how one commentator puts it. He says, the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. The main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. So, so we want to look at the main thing, and the plain thing. What's the plain thing that John is telling us here? 
What's the plain thing? The plain thing is pretty obvious, isn't it? The plain thing is, yeah, we win, but before that, there's a whole lot of fighting going on. That's the, that's the plain thing. The plain thing is that there's a woman and her child, and they're carrying out the purposes of God in the world, and the devil is doing his damnedest to snuff it out before it gains too much ground in the hearts of men. And he knows that his time is short, and he is furious, and he is focused every ounce of his hatred on you, on you. And he wants to torture you, torment you, and then destroy you and everyone and everything that you love. This is the plain message of chapter 12. There is a fight going on, see? But don't run from him. Fight him. Fight him. Chapter 12, verse 6 tells us that the woman fled into the wilderness and actually says it twice in chapter 12. She fled into the wilderness the first time for 1,260 days, the second time for time, times, and half a time, which is the same amount of time. It's three and a half years. The time frame doesn't really matter as much. She fleds into the wilderness for this period of time, and it's, and it's such a brilliant way. One of the cool things about Revelation is that it ties together all of these biblical themes like that, that are woven, these concepts that are woven through the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way through to the end. And, and one of those themes is the desert or the wilderness. If, if you look in the Bible, the, the desert and the wilderness... They are a place of preparation. They're a place of training before God's people step into their divine assignment and fulfill it. Like, like, some, like example, Moses spent 40 years on the backside of a desert taking care of his father-in-law's sheep before God called him up to rescue the people of Israel from Egypt. Uh, the people of Israel spent 40 years in a desert before they claimed the promised land. Jesus spent 40 days fasting and praying in the wilderness, the Bible says that, before he entered his public ministry. Even the Apostle Paul, he spent 14 years in Arabia, off out of the mainstream, preparing, as it were, before he really entered his ministry as the Apostle Paul. And, and the point is that, that this theme is woven all the way through Scripture and so John draws this theme that the wilderness is a place of preparation, and he, and he introduces us to this woman these, and her offspring, and what happens? Well, she gets taken into the wilderness, and she, she's set aside for a little while. Why? Because he's preparing her to come back in and fight for her life. The fight, you see, is a part of your destiny. It's a part of your divine assignment. God, God put that in your DNA. You were built, I mean, spiritually speaking, you were built to fight this war. And this is what John is telling us, see? And here in chapter 12, we're also introduced to these two characters, the woman and the dragon. And these two characters now stay with us for the rest of our study in Revelation. And you'll discover that the woman... I mean, again, she's sometimes Eve, sometimes Mary, sometimes the church. 
As we come to the end of Revelation, the woman is the bride of Christ. But we have this theme, this motif of the woman and the dragon, and they carry through now for the rest of the book of Revelation. And this is what John is, is trying to help us to see, that there's, that there's a, an enemy who's gunning for you, and you're in a fight of your life. He's trying to wake us up to this. Friends, this is why you're getting your butt kicked out there. Because there's a battle, and you're in it. Can you imagine how easy it is to beat somebody who doesn't think they're in a fight? Right? Oh, you're my friend. <laughs> right? No, you're not. <laughs> right? I mean, you and I are just blind to this battle. And meanwhile, the devil's robbing us blind. See? We've got to understand, this is why, my friends, you're, we're losing our kids in the culture war. It's why nations are invading nations. It's why, it's why confusion has become mainstream in our public schools. It's, it's why the political elite do all the garbage that they do. It's why families, it's why families have been trapped in poverty for genera generations, and on and on and on and on it goes. We're in the middle of this war, in the fight of our lives against a real enemy, and you cannot compromise with him. You're literally in a cage match to the death, and if you don't wake up to it, you'll be destroyed. See? But it gets worse. Let's not stop now. There are two more characters. Two more characters. In chapter 13, we're introduced to not one beast, two. What we have here in chapter 13 is hell's version of the unholy trinity. We have a dragon, beast one, and beast two. And, and this is why we have to come at Revelation with a fresh pair of eyes and set aside some of those cheesy movies or Christian books you've read about getting left behind and stuff, where, you know, you, you got to set those aside. Because if you're anything like me, you know, yeah, I know about the beast and the number of the beast. You've, I mean, I, most people have heard about 666. But you know what? I never really knew until I started studying Revelation that there's two beasts. I always thought there was just one. I'm like, and one was bad enough, but I got two to deal with? Yes, we do. Two beasts. So hell has a trinity, the dragon and his two beasts. And we're introduced to the beast in chapter 13. The first beast is found in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And you notice this one comes out of the sea. That's important. Comes out of the sea. And he's described. Uh, he has ten horns, seven heads. He has ten crowns. On his horns and each head has a blasphemous name written on it and this and this beast he looks like a leopard so he's swift and he's quick and he's got feet like a bear so he's he's sturdy and he's uh, you know sturdy and he's got a mouth like that of a lion he can say things he, he's got a bite in what he says he's got a bite see and the dragon gives this beast his power he gives this beast his throne. He gives this beast his great authority. So this beast operates in the authority of the dragon. And on one of his heads, it seemed that the beast was injured, that he had a fatal wound, that he died. But it doesn't seem like that stopped him, does it? He just keeps on going. So that's important. Keep that in mind. 
And, and that people worship this beast. They worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And people can't wage war against the beast. They just seem to give into it, don't they? They ask, who's like it? Who can wage war against it? I guess we just have to succumb to this beast because that's the way that it is. He's given a mouth to utter proud words and he exercises authority and he exercises authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, it says. So who is this first beast? It's commonly believed that this first beast is human government. The crowns represent governmental rule, and it encompasses the entire globe. I mean, think about it. There's not a nation, not a tribe, not a people who doesn't have some form of government over it. True? So, and, 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 this, and this fatal wound represents the rising and the falling of government. I mean, you don't have to be much of a student of history to realize that down through the years, governments rise, governments fall, governments boast to take care of their people, and then they fail. And, and you also don't have to be much of a student of history to recognize that despite the abuses and the failures of government, people still go back to it time and time and time again. People still think that somehow the government is going to solve the problem. Do you realize how foolish that is? Like, you get that, right? Name a time in history when any government has solved a problem. You can't find one. So I'm not dissing our government. I'm just dissing all. I'm, we're going through history. This, I'm dissing every government, Okay. There's not a human government in the history of the world that has fulfilled its promises to its people. Never. And yet the masses still trust the government. What's wrong with us, you must ask? I go back even in the Bible. We have a biblical example of this. The people of Israel were set free from Egypt. Remember? They were slaves, man. They were under a terrible government. They were in bad shape. And God sets them free. And miraculously, and he's leading his people, and he's providing for them. He fed them literally every day. You want meat? God goes, I'll get you meat. Brings them in. Brings in the meat. The Bible says he didn't even let their sandals wear out. Their, their shoes lasted. I mean, right down to their shoes. God took care of his people. And you know what they did after a couple of hundred years of that? I want a king. Give us a king, God. We need to have a king like everybody else. And God even said to them, he warned them, you know, if you have a king, he's going to abuse you. You know, he's going to take your sons and put them in the army. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your daughters. You know that, right? If you have a king, he's going to do that. And they said, oh, yes, we still want a king, God. We need to have a king to rule over us. Okay, now, don't point the finger at Israel. Point at yourself. What's sick about you that you keep trusting human government? This is the beast. It comes out of the sea. See, you might argue, I don't worship government. No, listen, when I say worship the government, you go, you see in Revelation 13 here, you see, oh, they're worshiping it. 
This is the, the word that they use there. But you understand, worship doesn't mean singing songs to the government. Worship means trusting it. That's what it means, because we worship what we trust. Worship means I give worth to something. Literally, that's what the word means, giving worth to it. So I'm giving worth to this thing and saying that this is everything, and I'm trusting in it as though this is going to take care of me, and this is going to solve all of my problems. See? And then I keep getting burned by it, but I keep going back to it. And he says, this is the beast. Perhaps this is why the world fights against God's holy people so much, because our God is not government. And you think about it, God's people ought to stand out from everyone else, right? Not in the sense that, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that we're, rebel, that we're rebels. It's not what I'm suggesting. But we stand out from the rest of the world in the sense that I don't trust it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not like entrusting myself to it. I mean, I'm praying, that it, I'm praying for those governmental leaders. The Bible tells me I'm supposed to do that. I certainly do. I, I want to see those men and women. Um, you know, I want to see them come into all the fullness that God has for them as individuals. And, and I want to see them make wise choices for, you know, for our nation, for our region and all that. I want to see that, don't you? So I'm certainly praying for them and supporting them as best I can, right? But I'm not thinking that somehow they're going to solve my problems. I'm not thinking that somehow their decisions are going to just suddenly fix everything in culture because it's not. They never have and they never will. The government doesn't have that power. And that's the point, friends. So this is the first beast. Now, the second beast ought to scare us even more because the second beast has such a power to deceive. Did you catch the word deceive when we read it? The second beast is extremely deceptive, and we start talking about him in chapter 13, verse 11. Verse 11, it says that he has two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So he looked like a lamb, talks like the dragon. And he has all the authority of the first beast. That's interesting. Except that how does the second beast use his authority? He uses it to bolster the first beast. He uses it to tell everybody, hey, follow the first beast. So the second beast is just propping up the first beast. That's what he does, okay? And it says um, that this second beast, look at verse 13, performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven. Okay, does that sound familiar? Uh, last week, we talked about the two witnesses who represent the church, we said, and those two witnesses bring fire down, and they do miracles, don't they? In the name of Jesus, of course. And so here's this second beast. He's doing signs and miracles and even this fire thing, a lot like the first, these two witnesses. So, hmm, boy, he looks interesting. And then the signs that he has and the power that he has, that he uses those to deceive the inhabitants of earth to get them to worship and honor the first beast. So who is this second beast? The second beast is false religion. It looks like the people of God, but it's not. It has the power and the fire and, you know, does some of the same things that the people of God do, but 
Clearly, it's not. It looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon. And, this, and the whole thing of this false religion is basically to promote the first beast. See, the false religion promises that it knows the way to God, but it doesn't. And rather than setting people free from sin, what's religion do? It traps them in a system of rules that does nothing to bring them closer to God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says that it has a form of godliness, but denying its power. In fact, that whole text, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, is all dealing with the end times. It says, in the end times, mark these words, and he gives some examples of what's going to happen in the end times, and it closes with this statement. They'll have the appearance, they'll have the um, you know, appearance of godliness, but denying its power, see? You know, one of the marks of genuine faith is its simplicity. It is. Um, the, the truth is, I know Jesus. He knows everything else. And I'm, I'm cool with that. You, you see, that's genuine. That's a, that's a genuine faith. It's not simplistic. I'm not trying to be simplistic because how many of you know it's not easy to, to land on that? I know Jesus. He knows everything else. I trust what he says. I follow him wherever he goes. Isn't that what we read there in chapter 14? The, the people of God, where they, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And see, this is, this is the mark. One of the marks of just of, of pure faith is just its simplicity. It's about Jesus. But religion, oh man, that'll give you a headache on its best day. It's so complicated, all the red tape, the rules, you got to get this committee to sign off on that and that committee to sign off on that, and if you get this stamped and you pay that and you do this, and you do that, right? It's so confusing. Wow. Because you see, religion is a fraud. So the only thing it can do is to buddy up with the government. You see why these two guys work together? So government and religion come together. Government provides the power, it provides the authority, it provides the money, it provides the prestige, and then religion, pretending to speak for God, convinces people to obey everything that the government says. In John's day, government and religion were glued together. So John's actually writing about this from his own personal experience, okay? So in Rome, a little, little quick little history example. Emperor Nero, powerful bad guy. After he died, Rome was put in turmoil. Like they had like, I think, five or six different emperors that rose to power. I mean, it, a lot of backstabbing, both literally and figuratively, going on in the political structure in Rome. Rome was, uh, the economy was in the tank. It was just bad times for Rome after Nero's death. And then the rise of Domitian, Emperor Domitian, who was the emperor during the time that John was writing Revelation. Domitian was bloodthirsty and powerful, and it looked as though Rome was bringing back her glory days. So the fatal wound had been healed. And one of the ways that, one of the ways that Domitian uh, maintained his power was they 
created this thing. It was called the imperial cult. The imperial cult became equally as powerful as the Roman government in this time, and the imperial cult was basically the worship of Caesar, believing that Caesar was God. But you had local politicians and rulers in different localities and towns, all of them jockeying for position to see who could suck up to the Caesar the best. And so they're all, they're all competing for who can build the nicest temple to Caesar and who can get their populace to worship Caesar the most. And so you have this going on throughout the Roman Empire. Now, the way that this worked is this. Trade guilds were important. They, if, if you wanted to have work, if you wanted to provide for your family, you needed to be a part of the trade guild. It was kind of like an ancient union. And so, of course, you want to have a good position in the trade guild because that'll get you the better jobs. Well, they passed laws that if you wanted to be a part of the trade guild, you were required to go into the temple of Caesar, burn incense, and declare Quote, Caesar is Lord. Well, now, I know that sounds familiar to you. You've not, we don't really say Caesar is Lord. We say, what do we say? Jesus is Lord, right? Right. Right. Well, do you understand? Jesus is Lord was the Christian version of Caesar is Lord. So do you understand? You see how that would put Christians in a really tight bond. Because now I, I'm in a dilemma I want to feed my family. I, you know, I got to take care of my home. So I've got to have a job. I got to work. And so now, what do I do? Do I go into the Caesar's temple, light the incense, and say the thing, and lose my integrity as a follower of Jesus? Or do I risk losing my livelihood and starving to death and being ostracized and out of the mainstream in society? and not say that and claim that Jesus is Lord. It's a genuine dilemma, you see. And so John's actually kind of alluding to some of this going on in here. Um, <clears throat> in fact, there's a statement. Yeah, I'm trying to find it. Oh, in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 15, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So they actually had uh, magicians in the first century there during Domitian's time. They were actually doing like little tricks to make statues cry and do different things to, so that people would see the image and see stuff happening and be amazed by it and worship the image to try to, again, build up its power, see? But that's what you have to do with false religion, don't you? You got to keep it bolstered, man. I'm so glad that I serve a God who doesn't need my help. Aren't you? Doesn't that bring comfort to you? My, your God does not need your help. Like, you have a bad day, it doesn't ruin his day. Isn't that great? Like, it's like, I have a bad day, then God doesn't go, oh, oops, and suddenly a whole galaxy disappears from the universe, you know. Oh, because Doug had a bad day. I was feeling it with him. You know, that's not how it works. God doesn't need you and me. He doesn't need our help. I love that. I find great comfort and strength in that. See? So, anyway, we would like to think that we don't face the same struggles because, hey, I don't live in an age when I have to go to Caesar's temple, but yet we do. 
How often have you found yourself, in the last two years even, caught between trusting God, trusting the government? And don't tell me that you can't see how many churches and religious leaders are publicly coming out in their support of different political candidates and even different government policies. You know you see that, right? How government and religion are hooking up in the United States of America. Let me tell you, that's bad news for the people. That is bad news. Let me tie this up. The dragon can't kill Jesus. So he comes after us with a one-two punch. With government and religion working in cahoots, they deceive the masses and bring them under the dragon's control. You see, the number 666 is not just some tattoo plastered on people's foreheads. You get that. It's not. It's, it's not that obvious. The devil's far trickier than that. And how do you know it's not that obvious? Well, if you go to chapter 14, the people of God in chapter 14, verse 1, have the name of God written on their foreheads. So I don't, I don't see none of you with Jesus tattooed on your forehead. Right? So, okay, so it's not, it's not a literal tattoo. I mean, I have friends that aren't saved who have never been to church before who I'm pretty confident would not get 666 tattooed on their foreheads. Like, I only know one guy in my lifetime, that I think it was Charles Manson, that, you know, had something close, right? But that was it, right? No, it's way, that's way too obvious. The devil's far trickier than that. No, when it says that he puts it on your forehead and on the right hand, okay, it's giving you a clue here that he's talking about, talking about the center of your beliefs. He's talking about the center of your thoughts, you know, and your actions, your right hand, your actions, how you move, how you follow through on your beliefs. And so, so by saying it's on your forehead or it's on your hand, he's saying what dominates, what, what beliefs dominate your mind influence your behavior what beliefs dominate your mind influence your behavior we always live out of our beliefs i can literally tell you what you believe by looking at the way you live your life literally see if you say that you believe in jesus but your calendar, your checkbook, your relationships, your work ethic, your sex life, your morals, they don't reflect Jesus, then stop kidding yourself. You don't believe in Jesus. Because you always live what you believe. See, we, we, love, we, live, we love that. We, we do that a lot in our culture. We do that a lot. We, we love to, we, we, we're big into the social media, into the, you know, into the public image. What I, what I put out here for other people to see. And we, we fool ourselves a lot because we, we love to think that we are this, but our actions prove otherwise. So see, this is a battle. You understand? This is what John's telling us. This is a battle, and you can't fight for both sides. you got to pick a side because the stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. How do we know? This is chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, John closes with a vivid picture of the, how the final judgment will go down. And it's vivid. Are you wheat or grapes? 
In the first picture, you see Jesus is given a sickle, and it's Jesus, clearly Jesus, and he's given a sickle, and he harvests the wheat in one fell swoop. And then in the second scene, you see this angel who takes a sickle and harvests the grapes. Now, that's that out of you and I, I guess, we're, we don't use sickles too much, so it probably doesn't catch us right away. But you understand, you don't use a sickle to harvest grapes. If you used a sickle, you would destroy the grapes. But these grapes are destined for wrath. So it really doesn't matter if they get bruised. And he brings them in, and he tramples them in the winepress of God's wrath. There's a very clear distinction being drawn between the people of God and everyone else. The people of God are represented by wheat. It's this great harvest. Jesus brings them in. And then everyone else is the grapes who are harvested and then destroyed. Which team are you on? Where are you at? You say, well, I, I, I'm, I'm one of the wheat. I know I am. Show me. Because you live what you believe. So show me. I mean, friends, listen. I mean, let me just be blunt, because I know some of you are like this. Um, if the Bible says that something is wrong, it's wrong. Whether you like it or not, See, and the most you can do is to say, you know what, you could at least say, you know, I don't like it, but I believe that it's true because God says that it's true. I mean, I can say, I can be honest, there's things in here that I don't like. Remember, John ate the scroll and it was sweet here and bitter in his belly. So I, I, there's some bitter parts of Scripture that I don't necessarily love, but you know what, I believe that they are true. And I, I can admit that in my flesh I wrestle with stuff, but I still come back to this is the bedrock. I don't have the luxury of making up my own beliefs. Like, I'm, I'm sticking to Scripture. See? Anyway, okay. So, fight, friends. How do I fight? How do you fight? How do you fight? If you're called to fight the devil, how do you fight the devil? You need to understand something. We don't the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. So we're not walking out punching stuff. That's not what we're doing. When I say fight, we're given three very specific weapons in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And we just read it here in worship team. You can come and play because I just realized it's super late. I'm sorry. Okay, well, I, I apologize though, friends. I, you know, I even didn't do the Revelation declaration today on purpose. Because I was like, we got to save time. I was, oh well. Okay, so here we go. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Would you read this with me out loud? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Three weapons that you and I fight with. The weapons in our arsenal. Weapon number one, the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb means everything, friend. We celebrate it at communion. Your sins have been forgiven because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of the Lamb, 
Romans 8.1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, no condemnation, not for those who justify themselves, not for those who have come up with a good excuse, but no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I stand in the blood of Jesus, and remember the devil accuses, chapter 12, he accuses the brethren. He's, the devil's always trash-talking you, and he loves to remind you of your failures. He loves it. Like Kenny was talking about yesterday morning, you know, we were joking about being beautiful. The devil loves to accuse you, loves to call you ugly. He loves to trash talk you. But by the blood of the lamb, I can stand. I can say, you know, no, Jesus has actually cleansed my sin. He's washed me, made me whole. He's made me beautiful in God's eyes. Like he's completely made me right. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I have his righteousness. A great exchange happened. Jesus became as bad as me so that I might become as good as him. <laughs> right? That's the blood of the Lamb. That's not me making it up or positive thinking. That's just me trusting in what Jesus accomplished for me at the cross, the blood of the Lamb. Second weapon that I have is the word of your testimony. There's no such thing as a private faith. Listen, listen, you know how this works. When you, when you experience something, when you find something good, you tell people about it. I've already been told in the last two weeks, I've been told that the best place to buy gas, there's a gas station in Vernon, because they get about five cents cheaper than everybody else. Right? Good news. We talk about good news, don't we? We do that all the time. It's natural. So this is not like you go out and start telling people about Jesus all over the place, although I hope you do. But I'm saying that when your heart is taken over by Jesus, the word of your testimony, it flows. It comes easily. I can talk about Jesus with anybody, anywhere, you know, because of all that he's done for me. It just flows out. I'm not trying to do anything. So we overcome the devil by the word of our testimony, the power of what God has done in my life. And then third Third weapon is I don't shrink from death. Think about it. The stakes of this battle are higher than merely dying. Aren't they? The stakes of this battle are eternal. Can you imagine what God's people would look like if we wouldn't be afraid to die? Can you imagine? You would be freaking unstoppable if you let go of that fear of death. We don't shrink back from death. And see, if I win that battle, man, there's nothing else. I'm not intimidated by anything else, but I'm not afraid to die. So third weapon that you have against the devil is you ain't afraid to die. I love the story. I heard a story about a Romanian pastor many years ago when Romania was under, under um, uh, Ceausescu, I think he was. Yeah, a Romanian pastor had a gun to his head. They threatened him. To, they were going to kill him because of his faith in Jesus. And this guy actually looked at his captor and he said, you, you can't scare me with heaven. And they actually let him go. I mean, I, you know, I was able to hear the man's testimony, but that was part of his testimony, you know? 
Are you going to scare me with heaven? Sure. So friends, may that be our attitude. You got those three things, you're undefeatable by the, the devil can't touch you. So let's pray. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.